This is the Low Level Hell Podcast, Episode 17. Welcome to the Low Level Hell Podcast. Program that explores the world of rotary and fixed wing combat aviation through the exciting stories of the men and women who experienced it firsthand. Now, here's your host, U.S. Army helicopter pilot, Brian Harris. Hey, everybody, welcome back to the show. And what can I say? I apologize. Uh, my intention was to get two episodes out last month, and I had everything I needed to do, but uh, just Kind of life got in the way. I've been doing a lot of work around the house. In fact, I'm talking to you now from a new studio that I created. I uh, took an old shed that we had in the backyard that was pretty much just bare bones uh, structure, uh, some siding and a, a roof, and uh, went ahead and gutted it, put in some drywall, put in some insulation, made a ceiling, ran some internet cable out there. It already had power, so expanded uh, several uh, power junction boxes in there, added some lights. And uh, yeah, talking to you now from the studio. So it's been uh, a lot of work, took about a week, and then of course got a bunch of other stuff going on in the house. Just trying to get some stuff done here while the, uh, uh, you know, the lull between uh, my current position and uh, when I head on up to uh, New Jersey here in a couple months to do some flight training. So got some time on my hands, figured I'd get some stuff knocked out around the house. But again, no excuse. Uh, I am shooting for two episodes a month. Uh, we've been pretty good on that, but uh, we just had the one last month. But hey, what can I say? That was a, a pretty good episode with uh, Colonel Mills. If you haven't checked that out, head on back to uh, episode 16 and uh, listen to the original author of the book, Low Level Hell. And he was a great guest and I uh, hope to have him back on sometime again in the future. Got some uh, more guests lined up. Uh, in fact, I just talked to one today. We're going to set something up here soon. Uh, so yeah, we should be getting back on track, kind of plan the future. We are going to take a little bit of a hiatus, probably around September as that's when I'm going to transition up North and, uh, kind of start living out of my suitcase for a couple months, but, uh, give it a little break just to let me get, uh, you know, settled into the new digs and then we'll uh, get fired back up sometime, probably hopefully in October. I do want to say a quick thank you to my dad. He's a listener of the show and, uh, yeah, it was super helpful to have him of course on standby. Uh, every time I needed to ask a question about electrical wiring or setting up the drywall or any of the other variety of things that I really didn't know what I was doing. Uh, so thanks, Dad. I appreciate that. And I want to say thank you to all my Patreon supporters because, quite honestly, you guys helped fund the project. So uh, as I said you know, early on, you know, the money raised in Patreon and through all the ad revenue and all that good stuff kind of goes back into the, into the channel, into the empire of uh, – doing improvements to uh, my capability to do stuff as well as uh, throwing out some gifts to people, which we've certainly done through the low level health discord community. And yeah, I just want to say, I appreciate that. And I do want to take this opportunity to thank our new patrons. Uh, we're going back through uh, looking at may. So I want to say thanks to uh, Patrick Wobbin, Scott Morris, Matt Moreland, Weil, McCronenberg and Keith Farrell. Uh, they are all the most recent joiners to the Patreon. In fact, we're going to be doing a, a Patreon event here next weekend. I guess it'll be this weekend when you hear it. Uh, do a little uh, DCS action for our DCS players and do a little uh, air assault uh, scenario. So hopefully we'll have a good time with that. And I will be streaming that on Twitch and on YouTube. So if you're uh, unfamiliar with my channels, just look for Casmo TV 
And uh, yeah, you can watch the action there. Well, we'll go ahead and transition into the interview and we'll talk to you guys on the other side. All right, everybody, we're here with Rowan Ratliff. He flew OH-58 Alpha Chucks, Deltas, and MH-6s in the 160th Night Stalkers. How are you doing, sir? Good. How's it going, Ron? Oh, not too bad. I appreciate you taking the time. Uh, and, of course, uh, you know, the way that we met is through your son, who I had the, the distinct pleasure of serving with, uh, both in training and in combat. So I'm really glad that, uh, you know, he kind of reminded me that, that you had flown, because I had known that and just did didn't occur to me and then we were talking one day and so I, was, I was glad that he uh pointed me your way <laughs> uh, yeah there's a surprise from the 16 year old surfer boy with long hair and riding a skateboard to being a uh an apache pilot and army officer yeah yeah well i know you got to be very proud and uh yeah i've, I've spent a, quite a bit of time in the cockpit with him we, we used to fly uh, quite a bit uh before we deployed and did a couple, couple flights in Iraq with him. Um, yeah, good, good kid. Uh, but we're here to talk about you and your experiences. So just tell us a little bit about where you're from and how you got into the army. Sure. Um, born and raised in Birmingham, Alabama. Um, went to Leeds high school, um, actually with Charles Barkley, Hmm. (laughs) Uh, just of note. And, uh, I knew him pretty well, played a little basketball with him, not not on the team, but uh, like pickup games and stuff. Uh, hmm. Anyway, uh, when I uh, got ready to graduate high school, uh, parents obviously wanted me to go to college and uh, had saved for it. And I said, no, I don't want to do that. I'm tired of school, hate school. So it was, uh, it was either go in the Army or uh, I have a passion for hunting. So I considered going to Montana to a, to a guide school for hunting. Uh, the army won out and, uh, I enlisted, uh, I got a buddy of mine to join with me. So once I finished basic training at an AINT, I was uh, promoted to E2 because I, uh, suckered my buddy into, um, going <laughs> in with me. But, uh, Cause you showed leadership potential by encouraging others to do what they normally wouldn't do. <laughs> yeah. I just thought it would be more money every, every, uh, month. At that point, so. <laughs> uh. Okay. So you enlisted. What What was your MOA? Um, I was a combat engineer, bridge construction crewman, 12 Charlie. And mm-hmm. uh, we got stationed. In fact, my buddy and I got stationed in a little place called Dexheim, Germany uh, in December 1982. The Army was nice enough to PCS us prior to Christmas. Uh, and so we spent our Christmas there. And uh about six months later, we learned that there was uh, we we went on a company trip to Garmisch, and while we uh, learned to ski, being from Alabama, we met uh, some people uh, on the slopes that were ski patrol, and they said they were active duty soldiers, and told us how to apply for ski patrol, which also hmm. included adventure training instructor, and so uh, we uh, got permission from our first sergeant, and my buddy and I applied and. Went down and got uh, three weeks or four weeks of advanced first aid training and uh, hazing by 10th group, I think it was. And uh, in the end, got to sp- I-, I spent six months in Berchtesgaden, Germany, as an adventure training instructor, permissive TDY, uh, wow. not that close of a haircut, and skiing every day. So uh, wow. my list of time was actually pretty good. 
Yeah, that's a. I, I went on vacation there as a teenager. That's that's a nice area. Yeah, that's great. Hmm. So, so how how did you get into aviation? Uh, that's kind of a crazy thing. Uh, so I had a break in service, obviously. Um, went back home to Alabama, started uh, college, and working a job, and then. Um, uh, like like many of us, had one of those uh, uh, heartbreak breakups with a girlfriend and uh, decided to, to go to Florida and ended up going to a church school in Florida and uh, uh, saw that my GPA needed some help. And so uh, Florida Southern College was a satellite ROTC. And uh, so I joined that in 1986. Um, and then, of course, around that time frame, um, Top Gun came out. So mm-hmm. I wanted to fly something, and uh, uh, in fact, while I was in Ar- Ar- Army ROTC and already contracted, uh, I actually uh, called the Marine Corps Air Force recruiter because I wanted to fly something fast, I thought. But that mm-hmm. didn't work out, so I uh, put in, uh, like you do in ROTC, for um, your preferred branch. I listed aviation first, followed by infantry, and my professor of military science said, uh, well, uh, when the results came back, he said it's a it's a waste of a good infantry officer, but you you got branched aviation. So <laughs> there it was. All right. So and then you went off to fly OH fifty eight Alpha Chucks at that point, right? Yeah, I went to flight school in uh, eighty eight, and I went through the scout scout track at that point in time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and boy, it's a lot different now. <laughs> uh, yeah. than it was back then but anyway so back then it was 58s and then Cobras were basically your choices as far as the scout attack side of things yeah and then you could do a follow on for uh, A64 I believe but that was after one of the two and um, based on OML I believe but I, I didn't mm-hmm. do that because I had a W-2 that lived next to me on post, and he told me uh, if I want to get flight time, stick with OH-58. So I listened to him. Yeah. Yeah, well, that was still true throughout the 58's tenure. We, we'd always get busted on for counting all of our time hovering. It's like, well, we're, we're technically flying, so it counts. Um, what was it like being an Alpha Chuck guy? I mean, what what was kind of the, the day in the life of a of an Aero Scout pilot back in those days? Because the aircraft wasn't armed, right? No, it was a straight 58 uh, Charlie, if I remember. It could have been an Alpha Plus, but I think it was a C model. Um, Mm -hmm. It was assigned to Fort Hood, uh, 1227 Attack Battalion. That was back when um, the the Apaches and the 58s were in each uh, company. Mm. Um, Yeah, uh, the companies, I was in Bravo Company, they were um, task organized with uh, four 58 Charlie, six Apaches. I believe the Apaches were A models. Um, anyway, and there was only three pilots when I arrived. I was number three. We had the 58 Battalion SIP in the troop, along with a W-2 who was getting ready to ETS. So got a lot of flight time um, focused on me as a young aviator. Um, they made me a PIC probably too early, but in less than 90 days, day, night, night vision goggle. And uh, about a month later in October, I got shipped out to be an OC pilot uh, um, out of NTC. Uh, those were kind of like details. It was 
me as a second lieutenant, a first lieutenant, and a W-2 named maybe W-3, Brian Penley. Anyway, um, it was uh, it was really interesting to see the look on the, the captain uh, observer controller face when his pilot at NTC was a second lieutenant. So, but uh, Yeah, that's pretty rare. Learned a lot. <laughs> so in that sort of task organization, I mean, were you guys doing a lot of training together or was it just kind of a clearinghouse of, well, these guys are stuck together? Because when I was, uh, you know, at 717, we had the Apaches and then we had the UAS. And on paper, you know, they were in the same troop and they're supposed to work together, but they very rarely got a chance to do anything. Were you guys ever working with the Apaches or everybody just kind of do their own thing? Uh, no, we, we were integrated uh, pretty well. Um, you know, we would do troop missions uh, with, uh, you know, as many as many Apaches as we could get up. Usually it was three 58s uh, with the 58 being the leader craft. The same way for... Um, uh, battalion gunnery, the 58s were definitely used um, and integrated, uh, like at a battle position, you'd come up and hmm. you'd do battle p- position security uh, around um, the the A864, um, you know, spot any close-in targets, which was kind of a joke because the optics on the Apache um, – and then you were always great to have to go do a parts run when one of the Apaches broke, which with the A models happened often back then. So uh, right. we, we would do all those different things. We would also, you know, do route reconnaissance out in front. Um, so, so we did work together um, and we're kind of integrated, you know, plus like some of the intang- intangibles kind of like diff cab that went away. Um, you, you know, you work, you, you, you lived, you, you played, you worked together. So, um, you know, we we're pretty cohesive, you know, in the aircraft type and separate us. Right. Uh, and you guys were flying single pilot in those days in the 58, right? Uh, well, you could, but, um, usually you had an AO, um, hmm. aerial observer. I can't remember the MOS. I want to say nine, three Bravo, but, uh, so they were, um, they were usually an E5 to E7, um, flew in the okay. left seat. They were supposed to navigate, make radio calls, especially to a ground force or uh, artillery calls. Um, were they, did, they, did those guys carry any weapons like to fire from the, the aircraft? Uh, no. I mean, uh, <laughs> that's funny. That makes me uh, remember when we went to uh, the Desert Storm we had uh, we, we all had 38s in first cab division at that time and uh, hmm. i think some people depend on what happened cuz i didn't go with my platoon i had to go through fort benning and they were trying to issue me a 9 millimeter and i was like i don't need a 9 millimeter cuz my whole unit has 38s i won't get any ammo so no to answer <laughs> your question they just you know we had a 38 and in desert storm nobody had a full 6 round so Oh wow! <laughs> okay. uh, so eventually, you you upgraded, I guess you could say, to the to the Delta model, the Delta, not the Warrior. So just with the mass mounted side, is that correct? Yeah, when um, when my unit deployed to Desert Storm, and I think it was August uh, of ninety one, Desert Shield at that point in time. 
uh, my brigade commander made the decision. He had been trying to get me a 58D course because they stuck me over in the the TARP or the Target Acquisition Reconnaissance Platoon about four mm-hmm. months prior to that. And he finally got me a 58D course slot. And um, so he uh, he said, we're not, uh, Colonel McGill is his name. He actually said, nothing's going to happen until January. Go, go get qualified in your aircraft. So I did, and he was right, and nothing happened. And um, my son we previously talked about was born November 10th, and I made it back from Rucker for that and then went back to Rucker and then deployed on December 7th to uh, uh, Desert Shield. Uh, so what was that like? I mean, that transition from flying the Charlie to the Delta, was that pretty pretty dramatic? Um, you know, the actual – the stick part was, uh, it was a nice transition. You know, the power seemed like it was more available because then, you know, like you say, it wasn't armed. So you felt like it was a much more powerful maneuver, maneuverable aircraft. Um, and then we had the AFSOs, um, which were the forward observers divided or or provided by, uh, uh, the artillery branch. And all, they were E5s to E7s, and they primarily, you know, ran that left side, um, uh, maneuvered the site, the mass-mounted site, called in artillery, sent artillery missions using the CPUs. And, I, you know, I never flown the Apache, but if uh, for a comparison, they would be much more like the front seater and, mm-hmm. and you know, in the right seat. Is uh, the pilot just like the back seat is more is responsible for the the true yeah. part? So okay, so even the deltas before they became warriors were still being flown single pilot, and you just had an enlisted guy that's that's doing all the all the artillery, all the targeting. Uh, but he, now he's using the the site and the systems. Okay, yeah, and um, you know, like in the fifty eight Charlie with the AOs and then the AFSOs and the fifty eight D, they they received a certain amount of, you know, hands-on flight control training, but mm. it, uh, it had to be uh, conducted by an IP or a unit trainer. Like as a PIC, okay. I was not supposed to go and let them, you know, actually have the flight controls. Right. Not that but I you ever, probably did anyway. Not that I ever right. did. <laughs> no, that'd be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, we would give, you know, incentive rides to, to soldiers for re-enlisting or things like that. And, yeah, same thing. You're not supposed to, but inevitably you're you're probably going to. Um, so you – so I'm just trying to keep track. So you did deploy to Desert Storm. We got there right before everything kicked off? Yeah. Yeah, I got there uh, – Okay. December 8th or 9th. And uh, – pretty funny i just remember showing up at some replacement uh lsa in the middle of the desert and uh reminded me of like the movie road warrior and trying to figure out where mm-hmm. first cab division was and uh, it was just just one of those times you remember where there's like fires being burnt and there's a big movie screen at night and people sitting around in concrete you know slabs here and there just yeah kind of entertaining so uh, what were what was flying like during that during that time? I mean, you guys did. I mean, you got there right before it kicked off. So were you guys doing a lot of, I don't know, preparation 
training flights or were you just kind of flying along the the front line? Like how was that work? How did that work out? Yeah, I, I actually, my unit was, um, uh, Delta company two, two seven. So it was the general support company where they, cause they had no other place to, uh, put the, the tar platoon, the 58 D platoon. So, uh, they were out in the middle of the desert. Literally there's not anything around. Um, and the desert was just eating the rotor blades, both the tail rotor and the main rotor blades. So hmm. I guess they had started trying to train before I got there. So now training was extremely limited, experimenting with different type of uh, tape on the leading edge of the blades. Um, hmm. Just a lot of um, a lot of issues with both main rotor and tail rotor uh, blades due to the sand. So once uh, combat operations kicked off, were you guys how, how involved were you guys with that? Well, uh, me personally, my company commander, who was a Huey pilot, looked at me and said. Um, I think about four hours before we, uh, made the move north, he said, uh, Rowan, uh, you're the, uh, convoy commander. Uh, I'll see you when I see you. So oh, geez. that made me real happy. Uh, and my aircraft took <laughs> off and I watched them fly away and I watched him fly away. So, um, spent about two days going through the desert with a GPS with a brigade XO and a hundred and 43 vehicles, I believe, if memory serves me correct, and uh, finally getting into Iraq. And being part of First Cav, we were part of the whole uh, uh, faint or deception plan. So mm-hmm. um, prior to that, about two weeks prior to, to us crossing the border, um, my aircraft were actually um, doing some reconnaissance along the border and they were unable to able to shoot a few uh, enemy positions with Hellfire, um, but really not a whole lot of combat engagements for for our uh, six aircraft. Which okay, were so they were spotting spot targets for the Apaches. Um, not really. I mean, because back then the Devar, um, I think artillery branch had funded a large part of the fifty eight D. And uh, mm-hmm. we mostly were working with Devardi on uh, fire missions. We we did very little oh, with the sixty fours. They still had okay. the fifty eight. So okay, I got you. I'm still trying to wrap my head around this battalion that's got. I mean, what you're telling me is it's got four different aircraft in the same battalion. Um. Well, no. Uh, I'm sorry. So the fifty eight Deltas are in Delta. Uh, were assigned to Delta 227, which was uh, not part of 1st Battalion 227. It was a separate oh. company with a brigade. And oh, I got you. Wow. So I, I actually moved from 1st first, first of the 227th, where I was flying 58 Charlies with Bravo Troop or Bravo Company over mm-hmm. to uh, Delta 227. Uh, they had the general support. Uh, UH-1s, they had the EH-60 Siwi platoon, and then they had the TARP platoon that I was in. Gosh, what a, I mean, that's, it's very streamlined these days. And so hearing about this organization that's, that's broken up like this, it's, it's, yeah, it's mind boggling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Next year, yeah. I tell me you guys also had motorcycles or something. So, 
which I remember being a scout platoon leader, and that's what guys told me the old scout platoons were made up of in, in the 80s. They were like, oh, yeah, I remember when I first came in, we had we had Jeeps, and we had Humvees, and we had M113s, and we had motorcycles. <laughs> it was like all in a platoon. I can't even wrap my head around some of these task organizations from the late 80s, early 90s. So, okay, so you had 1st Battalion that was still – uh, Charlie Model 58s, Apaches, and some Blackhawks, and then you guys were the special, what I guess eventually became the GSAB, the, the General Support Aviation Battalion, which is just Blackhawks and Chinooks, but you guys had Hueys and, and Deltas and stuff, so that's interesting. Okay. Yeah, I think it was 6-6 six, six, and 3. Six uh, hmm. UH-1s for uh, General Support, followed by um, six 58Ds, and then three EH-60s. Okay. Interesting. And then, like you said, because of the funding, uh, which I think we talked about in a previous episode as well, the, the funding for the Delta model came from, like you said, the, the artillery branch wanting some sort of aerial observer that could give more precise uh, targeting data other than, you know, a guy with binoculars and a map. Uh, so, so that's how they funded the, the upgrade with the MMS and everything. So, okay. Um, so you got done with desert storm. What happens next? Um, didn't get fly light because, you know, I was RL3, got progressed up to RL21. We came back um, and uh, quickly moved up to PIC, did a couple of NTC rotations. Um, and then uh, when I was in flight school, I remember uh, the 160th would come in, uh, to every flight school class and give the recruiting pitch. And at that point, I said, uh, you know, one day that's really what I want to do. So, um, uh, W2, who was, uh, flying Hueys in our G in our general support company that I, that I talked about, um, yeah. he went and assessed and he, uh, they, um, he, he made it. And I was like, well, I can try this as a first Lieutenant. So I went there right after an NTC rotation in March of 92 and, um, uh, was accepted and had the plan to go there after the, what was called the advanced course now, the captain's career course out of mm-hmm. Rucker. Um, but uh, back then, PERSCOM, now HRC, said uh, no problem. And then uh, about a month from PCS time, I received orders to uh, Germany. So uh, didn't understand that, but uh, had a phone call with the major that told me and then uh, kind of a heated conversation handed over to her <laughs> boss, Lieutenant Colonel, who told me I could either go to Germany or resign. So anyway, I guess I should go to Germany. So I went to Germany. Um, was uh, was The line that Perscom gave me was uh, 58 Delta captains were short in Germany, really needed me there. Um, so when I got there, I was assigned to uh, 1-1 Cap Squadron, a division Cap Squadron, First Armored Division in uh, Budingen, Germany, who had uh, 58 Charlies and AH-1s. So, <laughs> so you needed your special skills that they actually didn't need. So how yeah. much time did you spend there? Um, spent just about two and a half years. Um, I know it sounds dorky, but uh, I was uh, they assigned me as a squadron S-1. And... Mm-hmm. Uh, I learned a whole lot from the squadron commander who was a, uh, armor officer, 
Um, hmm. Probably things I would never learn. The unit was great. Um, it was uh, three line ground troops with Bradleys and M1s, two line aviation troops with Cobras and 58s, an F troop for maintenance for the aircraft and HHT. And while we were there, actually, 11th ACR uh, shut down. And um, I don't know the total squadron numbers. I know at one point the, the HHT commander told me that he had over 300 uh, soldiers in his company, uh, hmm. which is, you know, about the size of an aviation yeah. battalion. <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, it was um, it was uh, one of obviously my better assignments um, and uh, still trying to get to special ops, though and contacted the regiment and um, uh, I, I got a six month drop and then a PCS to Fort Campbell in 1995. So um, started okay. out with 160th thing. So as the S1, which for listeners who don't know, that's responsible for the, the personnel officer essentially for the, for the unit, um, which, you know, that's one of those jobs. It's it's kind of like your son when he became the uh, the S four, the logistics officer for the squadron. You know, and he he would commiserate to me that you know oh, I don't want this job, and you know I said, well, one, I don't care, and <laughs> but two, um, you're going to learn a lot, and you know it's it it does give you kind of a, a look behind the, the curtain because everyone on the commission side, the, the the RLOs, you know, they of course they just want to wiggle sticks and fly, and that's great, and that's fun, but. Um, it's not until you get to those jobs that you start to see behind, you know, what's going on and, you know, sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad, but, but you certainly learn a lot. Um, and I know, I know Abe learned a lot as the S4. And like you said, I'm, I'm sure being the S1, you, you got to see a lot of, of how the sausage is made, so to speak. Yeah. The, and the big part of that, you know, when you're, um, don't want to offend anybody, but in a ground unit, you get a lot more of what was termed as night court. So, there was uh, mm. there was UC usually UCMJ three to four days out of the week uh, that the squadron commander had to do and uh, um, not and nobody likes to do that uh, but to do it right is, uh, is is something to that really you know helped me further on in my career I didn't have to do it often in aviation but uh, I learned a lot just mentoring not just on UCMJ from him but um, he, he made it a point to where a spur ride uh, for all the cavalry uh, people in the audience, um, it incorporated all the ground uh, tasks along with the aviation task. It didn't matter whether you were hmm. an aviation soldier or whether you were an armor soldier. You had to know enough about um, both weapon systems, um, M1, M3, AH-1, 58, some tactics uh, we shared uh, uh, truly integrated uh, during gunnery between the H1s and the M1s and the M3s and 58s. Um, it was uh, it was a good experience. Yeah, I, when I first came in the Army as an armor guy, the, the div cap squadrons were still in existence, and I, that was one of those places that I just wanted to go to because it had everything and, and it just seemed like a really, really neat uh you know, unit to be in with, with all the capability. So as the S1, did you still get to fly at all or no? Yeah. Um, I flew with the uh, Delta troop, uh, had my ATP and I, I, I still got to fly about, I don't know, probably 
twice a week. Uh, and I would try to focus it on hmm. goggles. Um, I, I just remember, uh, I told somebody one day, I said, my day consists of, consists of coming in at six, doing PT, um, Squadron S1, then we actually had a little O club uh, in uh, Budigan, Germany, where we had the keys to it. Uh, it's kind of shut down. We would run it uh, for Hell and Farewells and uh, different events. Mm-hmm. And I forgot what we had. I think it was a promotion that day. So about two o'clock, I went there, opened it up uh, with my adjutant, and uh, we, we promoted somebody, had a ceremony. Uh, I washed dishes and then I went and flew night vision goggles till about 10 o'clock. So, um, I always live by, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter, uh, what you do. Cause, uh, as long as you have, uh, as long as you keep doing, uh, you know, what the right thing is and, you know, humble enough to do dishes or fly night vision goggles or whatever it takes. So, um, I tried to instill, a little bit of that in, uh, in my son. No, and, and you did. Um, and I think that's the challenge for all staff aviators is you got to find that time because, because uh, the train doesn't stop. Uh, particularly I think when you're an S one, um, you know, I was, I guess, fortunate in all my exo time, all my S ones were actually personnel officers, so they didn't have to balance a flight schedule, but, but of course, Abe and, and some others that were, and they had to find that time. And I always tried to encourage that too, because I was the same way. Like, you know, I, I was the XO, but I was still flying two, three times a week. You have to make the time. And there's too many guys that I worked with or around that, that didn't. And, you know, those skills atrophy after a while. So, so now that's, that's a good point. So showing up at the 160th, uh, I mean, did you already know what, like, I guess things are maybe different now or, you know, maybe they weren't, but when you assessed, was it, you are assessing for a particular airframe or is it just you're getting in the regiment and we'll figure it out when you get here? Um, back when I assessed, it was, uh, for a particular air, airframe. Um, and okay. it was, uh, MH six and, uh, and my assessment took place in the MH six, uh, mm-hmm. which is, uh, mostly navigation, but, um, I think I still got a, uh, a dash 10 test five and nine. <laughs> um, I think I got to study about a, a day while I was planning my flight or whatever they give you. Um, and then then actually did get to fly it a little bit. Um, so, you know, now I'm not a hundred percent sure how they do it. I'm, uh, been been gone too long. So. Yeah. I think, I think it's somewhat the same as you're saying. I I know that they assessed, uh, friends of mine for a particular aircraft, but they all seem to have gone to a session and and flown in MH6 and, and done navigation and all that stuff. Um, so, so you got there and now you're finally arrived, you know, two years later than you had planned and just kind of talk through that experience and, and what it was like getting, getting integrated. Yeah. I think it's good to, um, you know, that I did have that experience as a troop commander at that point in time. I think that made a difference. Um, unfortunately there were no open slots in the uh, A company. So, um, I, I was assigned as the, uh, training company uh, XO, uh, which is now, I think it's uh, SOAP B special operations aviation training b- battalion. At that point it was a company mm-hmm. which, uh, which ran all of green platoon and, uh, actually signed for multiple MH 47s, um, little birds, Blackhawks, 
we're all part of the training company. Um, and, and to include obviously the, the POI or the course of instruction for both, uh, enlisted and officer green platoons from, uh, from the start to the end to include, uh, scheduling, uh, people for SEER, uh, during that point in time. So, um, got there, okay. went through the first basic green platoon and then, um, which is what, what they call basic skills and then was assigned to the, uh, so ATSI or training company as the XO. So went through green platoon. Now you're assisting running green platoon and some other things. Yeah. And uh, green platoon is, uh, I think as it still is, uh, there's a contract and contractors or the uh, instructor pilots during the uh, flying part. Uh, As you can imagine, all of them are accomplished night stalkers from the past. And, um, so, um, it's mostly my, my responsibilities were scheduling. And then of course we had a change of command of the training company. So, uh, I got to learn a lot about, uh, Oh, what are they called? ISU nineties with, uh, all the tool rooms yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I never knew a CH 47 MH 47 would have so much flyaway gear. <laughs> so <laughs> actually it was a learning experience, but uh, that was a uh, that was very comprehensive. Um, while I was there, I mean, I was still I got to fly the uh, the OH sixes that uh, the regiment used to have. That's what they use for um, for all of Green Platoon. Maybe they were MH six Charlies. I think that's what they were. But uh, um, eventually, um, they turned those in and. Uh, I think all of them now are MH6Ms that are that are the uh, standard platform for Green Platoon. So how long how long were you in uh, in that position as the XO for Green Platoon Um, or the training company? I want to say it was a little over a year um, or close to a year, and then um, well, kind of a funny story. Slots, a couple of slots were open for a company. So, um, um, two guys had come in since I arrived, uh, at the 160th and we're supposed to go to a company and, um, the first battalion, which owns, um, a company at the MH sixes, uh, lobbied to put them both in the next green platoon class to go to a company and MH six, which meant I would be, uh, postponed yet again. So, um, hmm. I talked to my commander and I wrote my resignation letter and turned it into him. <laughs> and, uh, so then, uh, that, pr- that, uh, that, that prompted an office call with the regiment commander, then Colonel Daly, uh, now ambassador Daly retired, but, um, and he asked me why I did it. And I said, I know life's not fair, sir, but, um, you know, I was here first. I that's long before either of these other peers. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, um, I can do something else outside the army. So yeah. you know, he just said, didn't know it. It'll be taken care of. So anyway, I did get to start green platoon and, um, um, finished up, uh, in December, I think of, uh, 96 and, um, uh, was assigned to a company 
uh, 1st Battalion, 160th as a MH6 platoon leader uh, in December. I, I love that story because, I mean, sometimes you, you have to do that in in the military. Well, everywhere, but but in the military, I think some people don't understand. And sometimes you, you certainly have to play hardball because um, things will change. I, I had a, a similar incident happen to me when I was uh, – in 117 Cav, I uh, I was slated to take a, a flight troop, and I was working in the S3 shop. And uh, one day, it's so weird because I could see it coming. A, a buddy of mine, we, you know, we were good friends, we still are, and um, he was working at Brigade, and he was slated to take the headquarters troop for the squadron. And I was at the squadron level S3 and slated to take one of the flight troops. Well, some big briefing was going on and my buddy, he was running this briefing and he, and he did a really good job. And I remember just watching the brigade commander react to him. And I was like, something is going to happen here. And sure enough, the brigade commander asked him one day, it was like, Hey, what, what troop are you supposed to take? He says, Oh, I'm taking headquarters troops. Like, Oh no, no, we need to change that. So long story short, all of a sudden I got told I was taking the headquarters troop and he was taking a flight troop. Well, I had already been a headquarters company commander when I was an armor guy before I'd swapped over to aviation. I'd gone to be a warrant officer and all this stuff. And uh, and I kind of did the same thing you did. I walked into the squadron XO's office and and said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to quit. I'm going to go be a warrant officer again. And he's like, why? I said, because I've already been a headquarters troop commander. I'm not doing it again. There's no way. Yeah. And I was like, oh, what and, and then dragged me into the squadron commander's office. And then we had a chat and, and then there had a some other guy who had been promised things a long time ago, suddenly, you know, it didn't work out so well for him, but yeah, it's kind of funny that you said that story because that is a similar, similar incident. Yeah. There's that, you know, kind of that point in time where you got to, you got to stand up, right? Yeah. Well, you got to be your own career manager, as they say. So it sounds like one of those incidents. Exactly. Um, All right. So you're finally in the company now. I mean, tell us a little bit about that, a little bit about your training and, and all that. Sure. Um, the second part of green platoon just gets you to uh, the BMQ level, um, and then uh, basic mission qualified, and then really just a license to get to the company and 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 learn a lot more. Um, so um, BMQ usually is you know eighteen to twenty four months and as a commission guy. Uh, you're hoping to get mm-hmm. that 24 months at the company level. Um, and I would say uh, we actually, the first, uh, actually there was a, a real world that took place that, that December. And so uh, about probably a third of the company deployed. And uh, I don't know, I can't remember exactly where it was, somewhere in South America. Uh, obviously it's a new guy, I got to stay back. Um, when we came back from uh, block leave in January, uh, the first trip I went on, um, and, and of course, I don't know how the regiment is now uh, or 1st Battalion, but uh, the 160th when I was there, especially 1st Battalion, did a lot of their training, is uh, usually not done at Fort Campbell. Uh, a lot of it is you know different places. But we, we went to uh, mm-hmm. Fort Polk, Louisiana, and uh, did my uh, uh, first part of my mount training with the company real big eye opener um um, i think one thing that a lot of people in army aviation when they think about the regiment um 
you know, I think one word that comes to mind is uh, cowboys out of control. Uh, what I quickly learned, <laughs> um, and I'd been a you know a true commander, is uh, planning in detail and risk assessment um, were the highest priorities, and uh, the things that uh, I know the techniques and some of the maneuvers that are done in the 160th people might consider those cowboys, but the training, the practice and the risk mitigation, um, really make the difference where, um, they can still do the mission with, um, a lot of the risk, uh, mitigated away. Um, and that, that first trip was a huge eye opener. Um, the, the MH6 uh, used to have, may still have the wheels like on a Huey that you would put on them and they clip into place on the skid and you pull down the handle. Yeah. And so we were practicing a hot offload, like coming off of a C-130 and you have to build up the, um, it would do it at night and you have to build up the head, put the uh, rotor blades in and pin them, drop the wheels off, uh, drop the pods, put the, so, um, you know, I'm the new guy, BMQ, and um, I won't say rank doesn't matter, but when it comes to the mission, uh, you know, and training, you're, you're just another BMQ like it should be. And uh, right. I, this one was, uh, I think this was my first company mission, and it was in Mop 4, and uh, I remember releasing oh, the, the, the handle of the wheel, and the handle comes up and smacks me right in my knee that I'd already had orthoscopic surgery on. But, uh, so mm. I'm hurting, I'm, I'm breathing hard. I'm in the cockpit. I, I'm, I'm about as worthless. I'm truly just ballast over there. I can't see out of my mask. <laughs> it's completely fogged up. Uh, I've got the map and I'm trying to help the co-pilot and, uh, good thing all FMQs, fully mission qualified pilots and a company are, uh, uh, single pilot night vision goggle uh, authorized to fly that because <laughs> I was nothing but ballast in that left seat. It was it was kind of like okay, the mission's over, and okay, wow, we just landed. So uh, <laughs> rude awakening. It's uh, yeah. I went, I went from what I thought was uh, oh, this will be the way it is in green platoon to running with scissors because I was so far behind the aircraft. It was unreal. For, for listeners, uh, the mop four, you were talking about the, the, the mission, oh my gosh, what is it? Saying? Mission oriented protective yeah, posture, yeah. uh, for, for a nuclear biological chemical environment. So you're talking, you're in the full regalia. You've got the rubber boots, you've got the charcoal line suit, you've got the, the mask on the rubber gloves. You've got everything. I think so. I know. I know without a doubt I had the mask yeah. on. I can't remember 100% if we had all the stuff on. Yeah. I believe we did. And uh, yeah, I think it was one, of course, again, back to, you know, risk assessment. One of the two pilots ha had to not have the mask on, I believe, at that point. So, mm, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I remember the first time I flew in, in a, a mask and, you know, I didn't know. Uh, anything about it. I mean, I, I knew masks from when I was a tank guy, but, but, you know, there are different masks and everything. And we took off and we land in this little field. This one, I was a 58 guy 
And um, the instructor pilot says, okay, go ahead and put your mask on. And I go to put it on and I'm, I'm like yelling at him th- over the engine. I'm like, well, how do I talk to you? And he says, well, you didn't bring the mic cable or something. And I, I was like, I didn't know anything about it, you know? <laughs> so so I, he's like, well, you got to figure something out. So I'm like running the mic boom underneath, you know, from my helmet underneath the mask. So it's just pressing against my face and, you know, it's just stuck there. And that was very miserable. So I, I learned an important lesson to, to PMC your, your equipment before you go take off because I didn't even know that thing existed. And I think we had, I think we had M43s with the, you know, the, the fan that connected, uh, but mm. it still didn't matter. I just remember being so fogged up. I mean, turning my head sideways oh, and yeah. the other way. And, uh, I don't even know if yeah. I could see the fuel gauge, gauge to do a fuel check with it. Yeah. So from your background, flying 58s and then going to that, I mean, you, you flew quite a bit of goggles before that anyway, right? Yeah. So, I mean, that wasn't too much of a culture shock for you. No, I tell you, the culture shock is going from being a, 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 a tax uh, calf pilot to mm. being an assault pilot. Um, mm. And um, that's pretty humbling, at least being a, a little bird assault pilot. Uh, maintaining formation and, and truly, you know, three, three rotor discs to, to five sometimes, mostly three rotor discs. Um, on the missions, um, for a, for a, uh, a guy who's always flown calf attack stuff, that was hard. I mean, that was extremely hard. Yeah. And, um, you're always trading, you know, power for weight, weight to power ratio. And, you know, the first time I, ex- I experienced like getting below somebody else's rotor wash, there's all those little things that you don't most of the time deal with in the attack, you know, uh, calf sure. scout world. But uh, flying a little aircraft like that, especially once you get loaded up, uh, yeah, that's uh, definitely challenging. Yeah, because you guys are normally carrying like four guys, right, on the on the rails or whatever. Yeah, benches. Uh, yeah, it. it and it, it, it's all dependent, you know, how close are you to the target? How long do you want me to hold? Sure. Um, so I, I've had as many as six on there. Uh, we won't go hmm. far and we won't hold long. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> or, or two on there. You're talking about an aircraft that's so small. Um, and, and then, I mean, you start adding people to that. I mean, that's hundreds of pounds. And, I mean, I've, I've seen, you know, you guys land on – you know, balancing the skid on a, on a, a side of a building or something, you know, and, and that sudden shift of, of releasing all that weight. I mean, that's a dramatic power, you know, change that you've got to make there. So yeah, it's, that, that's gotta be incredible to, to go through that training. And like you said, coming from one community where, you know, there's, there's no reason as a scout pilot to fly three to five rotor discs from anybody else, unless you're, you know, unless you're coming in to put on a nice landing at the airfield, but the whole mission, you haven't flown like that. And now you're doing that in the dark with, with dudes all over you. Yeah. And the the standards, you know, kind of, they're there for a reason. They're exacting and, uh, you know, it's tough. You're fighting. It it takes a while to get used to that, especially as, you know, if you don't have any background in the SAW community. So that was hard work. Were most of the guys that came into the MH6 community, were they former 
like 58 pilots or did you have lift guys come in too? Yeah. I, um, I, I remember we had some Blackhawk guys, several Blackhawk guys, um, good friend of mine, um, who was a Huey guy that I was stationed with at, uh, Fort hood in uh, a company. I want to say we had a couple of Apache guys, um, leftover 58 Charlie guys. So, um, we had kind of a sprinkling of all, um, I think only one or two Apache pilots. So, uh, most of them mm-hmm. either went to, to, uh, AH six or, uh, MH 60 DAPs. So uh, how many years were you in, uh, the 160th for that, for that tour? I know you, you said you, you went back later, but for that, that particular tour. Extremely lucky. Um, uh, 1995 until, 2000. So not quite five years. Um, and part of that reason was I was passed over for resident CG, uh, CGSC. Again, one of those deciding moments, um, had a great, uh, battalion commander, Mike Zonfrelli, who, uh, who told me these kind of things happen and I shouldn't give up. And, um, you know, the army, I, I, the army needs me and he would find me, uh, help me out finding, uh, a branch qualifying job, um, which he, uh, he did, um, had a, the 217 commander, uh, uh Jim McConville at the time, uh, probably recognize that name. Um, mm. I went over and interviewed with him and, uh, I went over and I was, uh, served as his S3, and then he changed command, and um, I was surprised at the pace of the 101st. Um, but uh, they did a lot of training. Um, I think about eight months in, we uh, started training to go to Kosovo. Uh, I was the S3. I was the S3 for both the squadron, and then the part of the squadron that was going to Kosovo um, to include the aviation task force. So we deployed in, uh, I want to say May, 2000, um, I'm sorry, 2001, uh, to Kosovo with, um, I think units from five different posts. So I had, um, uh, in our unit, we had medevac, we had eight sixty fours, we had, um, 58 Deltas, which we were equipped with in 217, and we had Chinooks, so, uh, and Blackhawks. So pretty much all uh, Blackhawk types were part of the Aviation Task Force in Kosovo uh, to include, um, I don't even know what you'd call a command relationship, but there was a, a, a six Apaches from the UAE also in the airfield, mm-hmm. since we were responsible for the, uh, the operations for Army aircraft within the, uh, the area and the airfield, uh, I guess you could call them attached to us at that point in time. Um, mm-hmm. and of course, while we were there, um, well, before that, um, got to experience uh, a presidential visit and uh, work with the presidential uh, detail. Um, the HM, whatever they are that, uh, flies, uh, Marine one Blackhawks, yeah. 
had my um, enjoyed my time as the S3. I'd learned a lot from uh, the 160th and uh, uh, was able to 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 help the first lieutenants that became captains and with MDMP and uh, how to do uh, rehearsals, kind of like the 160th did, and uh, we set something like that up for um, when President Bush came to visit and uh, uh, the guys that were that were pilots for. Uh, Marine One, uh, extremely impressed, and we uh, we we pretty much moved the the media that came with the president. We also moved uh, the security forces. I think we had a SEAL team on Blackhawks and Apache. So that was an interesting operation. Uh, they brought their own gas. I remember that they couldn't use our gas uh, hmm. to, just as a protection measure for the president. Sure. And then not long after that, the uh, uh, 9-11 happened while we were there. So uh, just a different feel and perspective when you're deployed and that happens. But uh, yeah. Well, um, so after you did your tour there in the 101st, you, you got to go back to 160th? Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I was given a choice by uh, the brigade commander. He offered me the brigade three job and uh, I'd already uh, back channeled and knew, um, the, um, I was selected to come back and be the, uh, a company first battalion and the 160 commander. And so I, I turned down the brigade three job, uh, which, um, being the commander of a company meant more to me than I guess some people would say my career. Cause obviously the, uh, yeah. you know, brigade three is a career making job, but, uh, Mm-hmm. Yeah, I got to go back, uh, extremely excited. Um, got back there in November uh, 2001, toward the end of November. Uh, spent about four months as the 1st uh, Battalion op- OPSO, different from the S3. It's like the Assistant 3. Uh, just waiting mm-hmm. to take uh, command of A Company, which uh, I did in June um, 2002. And... Uh, and then uh, quickly got got back in the saddle, got back up to uh, fully mission qualified, which is kind of a subset of being the commander, obviously. But uh, and then we uh, we ended up deploying to um, Iraq in two thousand three. Um, I didn't get to go, kind of story of my life for the first two weeks, <laughs> kind of like back <laughs> to Desert Storm. But uh, uh, then when uh, when it was obvious we were going to move into Baghdad, uh, my boss sent for me. So I got there in April and, um, uh, we started operating in and around Baghdad. Um, I think I, and we, we started doing uh, 90 to 120 day rotations. So, um, mm-hmm. did those as, uh, the a company commander up until, um, had to change out. I want to say in, the in December of 2003 to be first battalion XO because our XO was select for battalion command. And, uh, so, uh, had a few other, uh, training deployments in different places between the deployments to uh, Iraq. And then, mm-hmm. uh, my last deployment to Iraq, I was, a, uh, uh, acting task force commander for one, one sixtieth, um, 
from about, I want to say, February till, till May of uh, 2004. That's because you guys were so split up. I mean, the 1st Battalion is, is trying to cover all this ground in multiple places with only so much Schlitz. So you've, you've got to have, you know, you commanding in one area and another commander, basically, you know, someone commanding in another area. Yeah. My boss was spending more time in, um, uh, Afghanistan at that point. Um, mm-hmm. just, just based on what was going on between the two different, um, two different, uh, engagements. So, so, I mean, what was your most rememberable flight, in in Iraq, um, and I don't remember who the target was, but um, I don't know. We had those playing cards with uh, <laughs> with all the different yeah. uh, you know uh, high value targets on them. But uh, yeah. usually, you know, working with uh, JSOC, we would we would get one of the top ones. Uh, I just remember uh, flying down a street underneath the street lights in Baghdad, uh, flight of four, seeing, uh, seeing the Ranger blocking force coming in view, the building on the left side, um, two aircraft fast roping. We were going to the ground, uh, trimming some palm trees on the way in, torque at max, no room for air dropping the guys off and everything right at plus or minus 30 seconds. Um, you know, door breach charges exploding as you fly away and uh, go to holding. And at that point in time, that's when I went back to uh, that time of flight school where I said, one day, this is what I want to do. So hmm. to me, that was one of those culminating missions. I mean, there, there's a lot of, a lot of others. Um, I'll try to, you know, that I might remember, I remember, um, uh, um, uh, being the AMC, I think we had 22 aircraft to include, um, AC one thirty, some other ISR assets, so assets overhead, Chinooks, Hawks, uh, H's and MHs, And, uh, I was still performing FMQ duties and trying to AMC at the same time. I had a really good BMQ, but uh, um, I remember sleeping. I wish I could remember the name of the airfield, one of the ones in Iraq. I think it was up at Tikrit, but we were uh, laying on the asphalt thinking nothing was going to go on. And then it came out. We ended up, uh, I think there was 34 detainees and uh, the Chinooks were already uh, bingo. So anyway, a lot of things going on, um, on that one. So, um, that's one I remember just because I'm, I'm trying to AMC 22 different airframes and, um, you know, coordinate fire support and uh, everything. So that was a huge challenge. Um, but, but a good one. Um, and then a mission, um, don't know if it's declassified or not, but uh, it, it was really close to the Syrian border, and it was actual um, terrorist training camp. And it, hmm. it was in 2003, I think, a little little toward the end of 2003. And uh, lots of ISR. It looked like a big mission. 
something like the 101st who was in country would do. Uh, it was long legs for, uh, for little birds. Uh, we would have had to uh, definitely put out a farp. Um, there was still a good bit of shooting going on. And, um, and, you know, in the end, like we talked about, I'm probably carrying four guys on each aircraft. Um, it was definitely a, a, a Ranger company plus type target with about 80 uh, bad guys on it. And uh, hmm. me and my flight lead talked and uh, we talked to the Ranger company commander and he said, really, you know, you can take uh, two more Blackhawks and mass on the target. And so, and we both, me and my flight lead said, it doesn't matter because, you know, we'll never get this target anyway. It's going to go to the 101st or somebody like that. <laughs> mm. I think it was the next day. <laughs> nope. It's going, it came to the, uh, you know, to the uh, task force 160th to do. And, uh, we were out of the game and, uh, anyway, it was a big, uh, it, it was a big mission. I think started out with three J dams, uh, two pair of a eight sixes going Winchester, uh, on ammo. I can't remember maybe three or four times. Uh, and, uh, the Rangers did a great job. So that's one of the ones I remember. Well, I think you and I both agree that you've made the right choice in the sense that when you had that choice between being a brigade S three or, being, you know, the Alpha Company commander, particularly during that time period. I mean, you said you took command in what two thousand two. So I mean, you're just you're right there at the, the beginning of of all the all the stuff that we're still kind of living through now. I mean, that's I'm sure that all came to light when you were talking about flying down the street with your your rotor blades chipping away at palm trees. You, you definitely wouldn't have been doing that kind of stuff as a Brigade S three. No, that the uh, one of the other funny things was I, you know, I told you I had to change out in December to be the XO. And so my replacement, uh, you know, came into country and, uh, I, you know, <laughs> we'd been chasing around Saddam Hussein for like a month, flying all over the country, sleeping here, sleeping there. And, uh, hmm. I think two days after he arrived, that's, uh, that's when they captured him. So, uh, I just thought it was kind of funny because <laughs> he put it on his OER support form. <laughs> oh geez! <laughs> oh, you son of a! <laughs> That's the way it goes sometimes. Yeah, yeah, it is. So, uh, how much more time did you spend in the regiment after you changed out of command? Um, you were the uh, S three. Um, well, uh, my time was running out, so I want to say about six months as the XO, and then. Uh, PCS to uh, Tampa to SOCOM um, that summer and um, got assigned to the J8 uh, and I did I did go to uh, the end of the internet uh, while I was there because I couldn't get uh, my boss to give me anything to do hardly um, went yeah. to two hours a day and uh, so um actually was selected for uh, battalion command while I was there. Unfortunately, I had some medical issues uh, right about the same time mm. and uh, that were not able to be, uh, not able to be solved. And then in the end, um, I had um, 
in my cervical spine, two crushed discs and a bulging disc and had to have uh, mm. surgery to repair those. So I had to turn down 217 CAV being the squadron commander and uh, mm. uh, never regained my equilibrium. So uh, selected for command a second time and had to turn that down. So at, at that point, Gosh. Uh, I just, I, I, I didn't, I didn't get medically retired, but uh, I didn't want to be in uh, that uh, staff position 06 the whole time or anything. So yeah, I said, uh, time to call it a day. So when my enlisted uh, time and at that point I had almost 22 years. So, mm-hmm. Well, you sound like a guy who uh, you weren't in it for anything other than you know, you wanted to be able to look back and, and say that you did the, the cool guy stuff and you got to have, you know, some adventure with it versus I'm just going to follow every, every mark on the wall that's been laid out for me. And I'm supposed to go to this job. I'm supposed to go do that. I'm supposed to go do this. And it doesn't sound like there's any regrets on those choices. No regrets at all. Um, I mean, I had a great, uh, I call it a career, call it, um, uh, time in the, in the army, um, uh, and it's funny because the older you get, you know, you look back and you, everything seems good. You, you remember all the, all the good times and the fun times, but, uh, um, uh, but, but overall, you know, I wouldn't change anything. Well, cool. Well, I appreciate, uh, you sharing those experiences with us and, um, you know, I, I enjoy talking to you and, uh, it's funny. I can, I can sort of hear Abe in your voice and, and, you know, I guess, I guess it technically be vice versa, but, uh, uh, again, I do want to say publicly, you know, I appreciate the son that you raised cause he was a, a great, uh, great officer to, to work with and a great pilot to fly with. So then, uh, it's been my honor to, to have you on the show and, and spend some time with you. Same here, Brian. I, I appreciate the opportunity and the kind words, uh, about my son, we call him Bud because he's a third, and uh, he's scheduled to <laughs> actually go do a one sixtieth assessment uh, next month. So, yep, yeah, he told yeah. me the other day. I I, I know he'd kind of waffled back and forth on that at least when when I was working with him. So I'm glad that he's he's going to give it a shot. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> we'll see how it goes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I do want to take this opportunity to thank everyone who has taken the time to leave a rating or review for the podcast. You know, I'll tell you, to be honest with you, a couple of weeks ago, I was just kind of feeling down the dumps. I think that's the uh, uh, natural life cycle of anyone who creates any sort of content is, you know, you start looking at your numbers like, oh, man, you know, I wish my growth was higher or, you know, you kind of you start building expectations in your mind of certain things. And when you don't reach those expectations, you know, you get kind of kind of down the dumps about it but uh i took a look at the uh the reviews hadn't looked at them in a while and i saw some really kind words said so you know things like that really do matter they really do kind of pump us up uh on the content creation side so uh you know if you can't be bothered to take a, a moment of time and, and leave a leave a review or leave a rating for the show it is greatly appreciated and it really does help the show out a lot in a lot of different ways and of course you can support the show by going to patreon and uh, taking a look at the different tiers there, depending on what your interests are. We do have our bonus content on there, which is really just a little bit extra time with me and the guest after the show. Well, as always, I want to remind everyone that the comments made by the guests and hosts are their own, do not represent the Department of Defense or any private business. 
We appreciate you listening and we'll talk to you guys in hopefully two weeks. See ya. What does innovation sound like? It sounds like the luxury of being in the moment with your customer, client, or patient. It sounds like having the right information right when you need it. It sounds like being at your best for your customers and your business. Thanks to Highland's intelligent content solutions that improve digital processes, innovators everywhere are able to do their thing better, whatever that thing is. Now, who doesn't like the sound of that? Highland. For innovators everywhere, visit highland.com.